Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 10. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. The word of the Lord. There was a poet a few decades ago who wrote, Express Yourself. You gotta be you and only you, babe. And let me be me. Express yourself. Don't tell me what I cannot do, baby. <laughs> this was written about 30 years ago, but it could have been written any time since the 1960s on. The modern culture that we live in is expressed in these very words. Most of us live in a culture, and in the West we live in a culture of liberty, right? Of freedom. These are good things. But the way we tend to define freedom is freedom from, freedom from government. And that's why we you know, kind of took our independence from England. We didn't want a tyrannical king, so we want freedom from government. More recently, we want freedom from social constraints. The traditions of, of the past or of religious orders or of people's uh, collective morale, we want all those thrown off. No social constraints to hold me back. And by and large, we want freedom from others. We don't really say that, but we do. We want freedom from others, total independence. Internally, we think, I want to do what I want to do so that I can be me, so I can be happy. Our aims, our aims in life, are very personal and individualistic. 
We don't really think, we're not a collectivist culture, we're not a, kind of an Eastern culture that thinks group ways, we think personally. And so when we think of success, we think about my, I think of my success. We think very individualistically about success or pleasure or happiness, and we just want to be free to be me. The Corinthian culture that Paul is writing into was very similar. They had this maxim that we've read before that in the NIV translates, I have the right to do anything. I have the right to do whatever I want. You can't say anything against, I have freedom. I can do what I want, right? And that's a phrase from the first century, but again, could easily be any common phrase today. The Corinthian culture was a status and honor culture. And they valued things slightly different than us, but some of them are similar. One of the things they valued was knowledge, not just education, but, but being in the inner circles of philosophical groups and having knowledge. And those who had knowledge had status. And then those who had status usually also had wealth. And so there was a sense of superiority that was very normal, where you would flaunt your status, your position, your wealth, your knowledge, over those who didn't have it. Now the problem that Paul is addressing is that the Corinthian church was very much the same as the rest of the culture. They had a wealth problem and a status problem and an elevating themselves if they had knowledge and looking down on those that didn't. And it basically boiled down to this one key issue that, that it wasn't the only issue, but it was one that you could see very easily, which was uh, concerning meat offered to idols. Now, it's a very strange thing for us. We don't really see that very often. But here was the basic story, the way that most commentators talk about it. In the ancient world, people did not eat meat. It was too expensive. But meat was a part of the meal related to pagan worship. So when you went to a festival, you would sacrifice goats or lambs or bulls. And then what was not sacrificed, what was left over, would be eaten. Which basically meant this, if you were in the, the meat market, the, the market, the kind of restaurants or the, the, the grocery stores of ancient Corinth, it's most likely that if you were going to be eating meat, it had been offered to an idol at some point recently. So if you were invited to somebody's house, they, they, especially if they were just the average Corinthian pagan and they, they served you lamb, you could expect that they had offered that as a sacrifice earlier in the day or the day before. So the issue is, can a Christian eat meat that has been offered to an idol, a false god, a pagan god? And Paul starts off in uh, eight, chapter 8, verse 4, saying, look, an idol is nothing. It's a statue. There's not actually a god there, right? I mean, people may worship Aphrodite or or Apollos, or Zeus, or whatever they worship, right? They, there's nothing there. It's actually not a God. There is only one God. And on top of that, Jesus Christ not only died, but rose again, conquering Satan underfoot. Satan doesn't really have any power. God has one. God alone is God. So don't worry about meat offered to idols. You can go ahead and eat it. Except, except as he says in verse 7, some in the church saw that that meat that had been sacrificed to idols was, had been offered in worship and their conscience felt guilty. They were very anxious that they might be eating meat offered to a pagan god. 
And basically the way that theologians talk about this is the difference between the weak and the strong. Romans also talks about this. And the interesting thing about the weak and the strong is that the strong are those uh, who have a strong conscience. Basically, it's not easily offended. The weak were those who had a more uh, gentle conscience where subtle things could make them really upset. And Paul is saying that while some people in the church have a conscience that gets very upset if they see meat that might have been offered to an idol, and probably because they were uh, formerly Jewish and they knew the, the, the wrongs of idolatry, or even they had come out of a pagan lifestyle and they were kind of wanting nothing to do with that. We see that today, too, when people have come out of certain lifestyles that they want nothing to do with it ever again. And so Paul is saying, look, some people have that conscience that's easily offended by these things. Their faith is shaken, because of their past. They have a weak, a a gentle conscience. Others of you have a strong conscience, which basically you understand that in Christ you have freedom to do whatever you want. If you are in Christ, you are no longer uh, right before God on the basis of what you do or do not do. You don't have to follow the law. You can just trust the Spirit to lead you in a sense. And so you have freedom in Christ to live as you want so long as you are loving God most. But the problem was these strong Christians were acting superior. And they were demanding the ability to eat this meat offered to an idol as if it was their right. Now we we in the modern world are also a rights-based culture. And the basis of that is actually a very good thing. The basis of our rights culture, which actually traces back to Christianity, is to protect legally those who are poor or minorities or disenfranchised. It's to make sure that there is rule of law for all people and equal opportunity for all people. It goes back to the abolitionists pushing, pushing against slavery in the 19th century and all the way up to a lot of the equal rights movements of the past century. Beneath a good rights culture, in America at least, is also our individualistic neediness, our self-concern. And so instead of just rights in this kind of more general legal way, we think about my rights. And when we think about my rights, what do we think of? It's what do I deserve? It is what do I want? How can I get what's mine, what's rightfully mine? This isn't fair, right? That's a my rights way of approaching things. And we see that we live in a my rights culture where we're always trying to get ours, protect ours, defend ours in the way that we view lots of things, the way we view our own money and our property, right? Your money, my money is my money. I can buy stuff with it or save it. It's up to me. You have no right to say anything about my money. If I have a house or a car, it's mine. It's not yours. You, have no, you can't say anything about my property. We think about our free time as ours as well, right? It's mine by right. It's today is my day off. You cannot impose anything on me. I, I already knew I was going to have this afternoon free. You, cannot, I, you don't have the right to press on me. Nobody has the right to say anything about my free time. It, it's so long as I'm not hurting anyone, you know? I'm, I'm just kind of enjoying myself. It's mine. Mine by right. But we also see this need this need, this kind of presses out in, in increasingly negative ways, in the way that we need certain things. 
right? We are a culture of individuals who need recognition. You look at the titles on jobs, and everyone is a senior vice president of something. Like, it doesn't matter where they are, senior vice president of. We want the recognition, the credit. Sometimes it's a much simpler thing that's kind of obvious too. It's like how upset we get if we're the one who found something, discovered something, and people don't give us the credit for it. I love being an early subscriber to bands or to restaurants or to other things, and, and I want to make sure that if other people start enjoying that restaurant or that band or whatever it is, they remember that it was, I was the one who found it first. I mean, what is that, right? Like, who cares? But there's sort of this, it's my right to, to get credit, to be recognized. The principle that Paul is trying to get at is to push against that rights and mine, and I can do what I want, and instead flip it. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 8, he says, look, eating meat sacrificed to an idol doesn't commend us to God. We're no better off if we do eat it or if we don't. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Don't eat meat offered to an idol, even if you're free of conscience, if it causes your brother or sister in Christ to stumble in their faith. He's basically saying, look, the cross is enough of a stumbling block. Don't you also be a stumbling block to people? I mean, that's the biggest reason why people don't come to faith in Christ now. It's the church. It's Christians. We get in the way of the message of the cross, which in and of itself is challenging and hard enough. Don't you also be a stumbling block with your actions? He's pushing against the strong, to not act out of superiority or a sense of my rights. But that's hard. That's hard for some of us. I know that in my very distant past, I had a superior attitude. And that superior attitude as a teenager, as a teenager, expressed itself in my religiousness and my moral actions. I was more moral and religious than other kids, and I knew it, and they were bad. And I had a sense of superiority. Now, I didn't play that out expressly. I don't think you'd have to ask kids that I went to school with. But internally, I knew that I was in and they were out or something of that way, right? And that sense of superiority could drive me in the way that I approached other people or thought of myself or puffed myself up and how I would get down on myself if I was failing morally or ethically. I grew up eventually, and in my 20s, I changed my moral and religious superiority for theological superiority. It's the problem of sending somebody to seminary. You get a master's degree in something, and all of a sudden, you know everything about everything. And I knew a lot about theology coming out of seminary and was therefore smarter spiritually than other people, as if my beliefs, now that I had a little bit of grounding under them, made me better than other people or that I was clearly right in every possible way, right? You're right in some things. You start to get a little bit of knowledge, and what happens with a little bit of knowledge? As Paul says, it puffs up. But his point in this is if you want to be truly strong as a Christian, 
Truly strong Christians are the ones most sensitive to the weak. Most sensitive to doubters and outsiders. Most sensitive to those that are new or trying to figure out this Christian faith thing. And that's been my experience too. I see people's direct maturity and faith in the way that they relate to people who do not agree with them and who are outside of their belief system. Paul goes on to say in chapter 10 as he's continuing this argument, all things are lawful for me, he's quoting again, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. You know, one of Paul's arguments in terms of how we are to live our lives is you can do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. You are free in Christ to do whatever you want. But what you want to do will reveal whether you are in Christ or not. What do you want to do? In chapter 10, verse 24, he gives us an example of what we should desire to do. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Looking to build up a community. And in verse 33, he says, Look, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. His whole purpose, as he says in verse 31, is in whatever he does, whatever you do, to glorify God. So basically, do whatever you want when what you want is to love and please God and to benefit others. Now go do whatever you want. That's the only check on your whole life. That's it. Is what you're doing, the choices you're making, the choices I'm making, my attitudes, my approach, is it loving God or causing me to love God more? And is it pushing me out in love for others, building them up. And Paul says, look, I'll use my own example. In chapter 9, he lays out his own example of how he has done this. And the way he starts off in chapter 9 is he talks about his rights. He, and he lays them out at the beginning of chapter 9. We didn't read any of this, but he says in chapter 9, I have the right to be married. Paul is married. James, the brother of John, another apostle is married. I have the right to be married. I also have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And I have the right to be paid, to be paid for preaching the gospel. But I don't use my rights if it does not benefit the gospel. And that's why he did not take a wife. And sometimes he does not eat meat sacrificed to idols. And when he was in Corinth, he would not take money. Now, Corinth was a culture that, like I said, valued knowledge, and one of the things that they did in that ancient and Greek world was they had little philosophical schools, and you would bring in your teacher, your orator, your rhetorician to come and teach, and you would pay them, and they would be, it was like a client-patron relationship. Paul did not want somebody paying him and them thinking, hey, I'm in because I'm in with Paul. I'm one of his chief, you know, contributors, he did not want to be beholden to them or for them to think that their connection to God was based on how much money they had given to him. Nor that they could lord it over others in the community. Hey, I'm the chief patron of Paul. So when he and the others came into Corinth, they, would re they refused money. 
And that was absurd because the amount of money that a, that a, a philosophical teacher could get demonstrated their status and honor and place. Like, oh, this guy, he's got like the big room and everyone comes to his and pays big money. And Paul said, nope, I'm not gonna be here on the basis of status, nor are you gonna take advantage of me on the basis of status. So he says in verse 12, he would not use that right for money, but endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. He is willing to limit his freedom as he says in verse 33 of chapter 10, not seeking his own advantage. If refraining from any right of his benefited others, he says, I will do so. I don't live for my rights. My aim is not to please myself, but to please the Lord. And so I'm willing to give up things that, that maybe I could, that could be mine because I love God more and I love you. And that's why Paul says this whole description in verses 19 through 23, where he says, look, for though I am free from all, I can do whatever I want, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. Why do I do this? I do this for the sake of the gospel. In a culture that valued status, Paul, who actually had the potential of high status. He was a Roman citizen. He was educated and one of the smartest men around. He had access to all sorts of circles. He was a rhetorician that a lot of people respected. And he says, I have made myself a servant or literally a slave to all. Why? For the sake of the gospel. To Paul, liberation, true freedom, is not about doing what you want. Freedom from others. It is about freedom from sin and death and fear that Christ offers, but it's mostly about freedom for serving Christ. I am now free to serve Christ freely and to serve others without worrying about how they perceive of me. As a way to kind of press into this a little bit more and what it might look like for us, I want us to go back to chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read that section for us. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. A couple of weeks back, if you weren't here, we talked about this word puffed up. It's a uniquely Pauline word. He kind of makes it up uh, or uses it in a way that others had not used it. it. It was the term for a bellows, for like that you pumped up to, to get the fire going for the blacksmith, right? But it also meant in, in medical terms, a swollen or distended body part filled with air and fluid. It was painful and fragile and touchy. To be puffed up is to be swollen with air, painful, fragile, and touchy. And he's trying to get at that emptiness that many of us have 
in what we value and live for. And that our sense of self, our identity can be so fragile. Right? Like a swollen or puffed up balloon, like a a swollen organ. Our ego is constantly comparing and competing. It just is. Every other person is a threat to my freedom and happiness. We may not really think that out loud. We may not say that out loud, but internally we're worried. And to the extent that we're filled up with something that is more going to puff us up, we will struggle constantly with our tenderness and fragileness. When we fail or fall short of some standard that we've set for ourselves, we feel awful, like, like our, all the airs come out of our balloon. If we enter a room and somebody better than us is already in that room, or somebody comes in and they're the better at whatever it is that you're supposed to be good at, they deflate us. We become small because they've just taken over the room. And even when we're succeeding in whatever categories we want to succeed at, we're constantly worried. We've got to keep up, afraid that the air is going to come out of our balloon. Is what your life is built on, even on a kind of, maybe it is Christ, but like on a day-to-day basis, what is your functional savior? Does it just puff you up or does it fill you up? And so the question to ask is, what makes you most defensive? What is it you're most likely to get defensive about where you always are trying to prove yourself? For me, it's about being right, because I'm usually right. (laughs) What brings out your competitive side, your vicious side? Why can you and I be so happy one moment and so deflated and sad the next? We're fragile. We're puffed up. I, I can be a critical person, and there's a critical side that's like just kind of a taste side, like aesthetics or flavors or, or things like a, a criticizing a, a film, right? I love talking about a movie that I've just watched with somebody, and it's kind of that being, you know, the, the art critic sort of thing. Can even kind of evaluate a restaurant, be that sort of critic, but that can also have its negative side, right? I can be a critical person, critical of others' approach to something. And I'm critical because they're wrong, and my approach is right in my head. And sometimes this plays itself out in being controlling. If I'm always right, I need to get my way, because if if we do it your way, it's going to be wrong. And if you do it my way, you'll make my life easier. I saw this some time ago with, uh, with one of my kids who the next morning, it was, a, it was a Friday after school, and the next morning they were going to something very early, and as somebody who knows time and how to prepare for something, and I'm really good at this, I decided it was my job that when my kid got home to tell them what they needed to do to get ready for the next morning. And before they could even relax, I had a list of instructions that they were trying to fill out in order to do the thing that I wanted them to do so that they could be ready for the next morning getting up. Why? Because I knew what was going to happen is very early the next morning, they were not going to be able to find any of the stuff that they were looking for. If they would have just looked the night before, they could have found it all, right? 
and saved me from, fr- I, I mean, sorry, saved them from frustration. <laughs> but really, who was I saving? Me, right? We're constantly pushing our own interests, our own way, filled with stuff that doesn't fill us. Fragile, swollen and distended and tender, easily hurt. In that Corinthian culture, Paul's talking about knowledge, the knowledge that you're free and that you can eat whatever you want and that that culture valued knowledge. Knowledge to them was like a commodity or a value that was unique to that culture. Kind of the way we value money or success or fame or just happiness, right? So you could almost insert in the word knowledge, knowledge puffs up anything that you value that is not Christ. Whatever you value, whatever you use to fill you up, It's just pumping you full of air. Does your career success? The question is, does it build you up or does it build others up? So you can have career success and and be free with it in a sense that's like, you know what? This can be used to build others up. I'm grateful for my career success, but it doesn't just puff me up. That's not where I'm getting my identity. You can be somebody who's very popular. Everyone likes you. Even somebody who in in social media circles has lots of likes. Or that can be the source of your identity. If you don't get the approval immediately, if the likes aren't there, do you pull the post down? Are you deflated? As you've made more money, has it made you more generous? Are we building our life on something that puffs us up or fills us up? How do we live? How do we live out a life of sacrifice, of freedom, of serving and loving one another, of not being so fragile or easily hurt, of giving ourselves for others' good, following the ways of God, even when it's against what I want. How? Paul says true knowledge, true knowledge is bound up in the gospel. True knowledge, as he says in chapter, in, in, in chapter eight, is being known by God. You can be known by God. Basically, that means you belong to God. You are loved. Everything you ever need or want is yours in Christ filled up to fullness. Craig Keener explains what Paul is getting at. The only status that matters is how God views them. And that status rests not, rests on, not on their knowledge, but on their love, and ultimately on God's love for them. You know, to live this way, we need to go back again and again to the gospel. There is one who did not seek his own advantage. Philippians 2 says that Jesus Christ, who though being in very nature God, 
did not take advantage, did not exploit his divinity, his power, his eternal riches for his own good. He had the power and the right to do everything and anything he wanted, but he gave them up, humbling himself, becoming a servant, a slave, and obedient to the point of death on the cross for us. Christ is not only the example, example, he is, the cross is the power to live out this way. When you grasp the fullness of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, you can finally be free. Not needing to be guarded or defensive or prove yourself or fill yourself up, you have been filled up. So there's no more need to puff yourself up. The gospel invites us to find our identity and our filling in Christ. And then it pushes us out to find relationships of love and depth and community. It says, you want to be free, come to me. You want to be free, be filled by me. You want to be free, follow me. Not express yourself and you be you. It's an invitation to true freedom and a community of freedom and love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the glorious one, but surrendered your glory, sacrificing, giving up your power for our sake. Let us see the depth of your love for us, your unfailing and unshaking love for us. Fill us up. Wrap your arms around us. Give us that depth, that strength, that sure foundation of being known by the only one that matters. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.